about you, but my heart's full this morning. Oh. Thank you, Alan, for leading us into his presence. What I sense in my own heart, and I sense in so many hearts of we people who are called holiness people, is a deep hunger and craving for the move of God among us. Louis, I'm thankful to hear the great move of God in Howie. I'm so thankful for the move of God that's happening in your area of the world. And I'm so thankful to hear the great move of God in the southern hemisphere. I want you to know I want to see a move of God where I live and where I pastor. And I want to see a great move of God in my heart and the people that I pastor. It seems like we're in between two groups of people in our churches. A group of people who are desperate and hungry and longing for a move of God. And then there's another group of people who have come to the place where they have given up their hope. They've given up belief that what we have taught and what we have preached and what our church was founded upon is even a possibility. Oh, it it sounds good on paper, and it might even sound good being preached, but when I get out there in the real world... It's not reality. Reminds me of a young man who came to see me not too long ago. He sat there and we chatted a little bit about his life and what he is doing, getting acquainted. And then I asked him, I said, what, what, what can we do for you today? And he said, well, Pastor, he said, I just want to be honest with you. I have a deep, deep hunger in my heart to live a holy life. I really do want to be all that God wants me to be. And I struggle, and I pray, and I try. And quite honestly, I do good for a little while, and then I find myself right back where I started. He said, then I repent, and I confess my sins, and then I go along well for a little while, and and then I find myself right back, struggling with pride and struggling with jealousy and struggling with envy. And I I find myself being caught up with materialism, being my God. And then he he says, I I find myself struggling with lust. He said, I'm on the computer and the next thing I know, I'm looking at things on the internet I should not be looking at. And I sit there and I watch TV and And I find myself searching on the remote for things that will feed the lust in my own flesh. And he says, I want to slap my hand with one hand and say, stop doing that. But yet I find myself constantly going back and watching movies that I shouldn't be watching. And he says, then when I get out and I compete in sports with my friends, I... I find myself sometimes when when we're winning, everything's great, but when I start losing, then that old temper comes back and and I get angry and and filled with rage. And and then I get mad and then the the words, the language that I used to use comes back and he said, Pastor, what's wrong with me? Why can't I live this holy life? that I've heard you preach and I've heard numerous other preachers preach. Why can't I do it? What's wrong with me? And then he said, what's wrong with God? And what's wrong with his grace? And this message that I've heard most of my life, that it doesn't work for me. 
And that day, as I said in my office, I realized he, he's just one of hundreds in my church. I mean, if we, if we believe the statistics that 50% of Christian men view pornography, then I realized this young man was not the only one in my church struggling to live a holy life. And if we find pastors, a high percentage of them are viewing pornography and they are struggling with the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, then I realize that this young man is not the only one who is struggling to live a holy life. And that day as I was standing, sitting there in my office, I, I just felt the Lord lead me to take my Bibles and say, hey, I want to I share some things with you. I don't want to preach to you. I, I want to share God's Word to you. And, and so I turned where I want you to turn, and that's Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And I said to this young man, and I dare not call his name because as soon as I do, someone here will be related to him in my church. And so I'm not going to call his name. So from this point on, the young man, okay? I asked him, I said, we need to start at the beginning. Romans chapter 6, verse 5. Paul wrote and he says, if, you, if we have been united with him. I said, stop right there with me for a moment. Have you been united with Christ? He says, well, what, what does that really mean? And I said, have, have, you, have you joined Christ's team? It's kind of like today I would use the analogy of Brett Favre. Many of you know Brett Favre. He played for Green Bay Packers for how many years? 18 years. And this year he got traded. Yesterday he played for another team, the New York Jets. He threw two touchdowns, by the way. Brett Favre did not used the Green Bay Packers uniform yesterday. He changed teams. He had a new uniform. And so I said to this young man, I said, have you changed teams? Have you gone from the devil's team to Christ's team? He said, well, what do you mean? I said, have you ever asked Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins? Have you confessed your sins to him? Have you repented of your sins? Are all of your sins on the cross? Have you confessed all those? He said, yeah, pastor, I have. And I do. And I said, that means you have been united with him. You are part of his team now. You have moved from Satan's team to Christ's team. You've made that change. He has now come to live within you. You understand that? Yes, sir, I do understand that. I said, well, let's read on. He says in verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with him. Stop right there for just a moment. I said, not only have you changed teams, you've repented of your sins, you've confessed your sins, you've opened up your heart, you've invited Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Have you done that? Yes, I have. Then not only must you change teams, but you also need to be crucified with Him. What? Yeah, you need to be crucified with Him. Verse 5 says, if we've been united with him like this in his death, we will also certainly be united with him in his resurrection. Verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him. And you understand that when someone was crucified, they died. And I said, it's more, this walk with Jesus is more than just asking him to forgive your sins and crying over the bad things you've done. It's more than saying, Lord, I want you just to Keep me out of hell. It's coming to the place where we are willing to die with Christ. To die to yourself. To die to your way of doing things. To die to controlling your own life. And he was a young man who liked to control things. It's, it's more than just you calling the shots. You doing what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it. It is dying to yourself and making Christ the Lord of your life. It means dying to Satan. He no longer is pulling your strings. He no longer is controlling your life. Now you have surrendered ultimate control of who you are and all that you are to the controls of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to die with Him. It means to die to the sin, to die to pride, to die to jealousy, 
to die to envy, to die to the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. It means dying to all of those things. Are you willing to die? Are you willing to be crucified with him? He didn't answer right away. He's thinking about it. I said, look at verse 11 with me. In the same way, Paul writes, in the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I said to him, not only are you to die to yourself and to sin and to Satan, but I want you to understand, you don't stay dead. He wants to resurrect you. He wants to give you a brand new life. It is now his life that's going to be living in you. That new life is going to be Christ living his very life through you. That's what Paul was talking about, wasn't it? Over in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul wrote, he says, I, I have been crucified with Christ, and I myself no longer live, but it is what? It is Christ living in me. And the life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, what happens is when you are willing to die, then Christ will resurrect you to a brand new life, and it will be Jesus Christ living his very life through you. He said, I hadn't thought about that. It's more than you just trying harder. It's more than you just struggling to overcome. It is you actually being willing to say, Lord, not only will you be my Savior, but I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want to die to everything of the past. I want to die to everything in the present. I want to die to everything in the future. Lord, I want you now to live your life through me. He thought about it for a moment. He says, you mean that I'm to die to, to the reign and to the rule, to the control of sin in my life? Yeah. I'm to die to myself and to allow Christ to live his life in me? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Well, Pastor, if in fact, if, if I do that, if I die to self and I die to Satan and I die to sin and I die to all of these things and I, I die from the reign and the rule of sin in my life, then why in the world do I still struggle with sin? If I've already done all of that, why do I still have that same problem with sin in my life? I said, well, you have to understand something. And Paul talks about that right there in verse 12. He, he said there's some things that, that you're responsible for doing. It's not a matter of you just coming and saying, Lord, I, I, I receive your forgiveness. Lord, I died to self and you're going to live within me. And then God's going to take over and, and take control of everything. You're like, there's some things you have to do. Now look, verses 12. Therefore, since all of that has already happened, therefore... Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. I said, Paul is saying it. Since all of that has happened for us, we have died to all of those things. It is now our responsibilities as born-again believers. It is our responsibility not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. See, for the very fact is that every one of us are born sinners. And every one of us from birth have developed our own habits of sin. Some of us have perfected those habits. Some of us continue to add new habits to our old habits. We are products of being born sinners. And there are certain things that we do as sinners that we won't even think about. And then there are other things that we have created habits of doing. I like what Jay Adams says. We were born sinners, but it took practice to develop our particular styles of sinning. <laughs> we're all creatures of habit. We are. In fact, I want to illustrate that. Put your Bibles down for just a moment. 
I want you to sit up straight and look forward. I want you to put your hands out right in front of you. How many of you put your palms down? How many of you put your palms up? Who put your palms up? One, oh, three. Bless your hearts. I want you to put your hands out in front of you again. Now I want you to cross your arms. How many of you have your left hand on top of your right arm? You can raise your hand. Look around. Look around at those. Very gifted people. Very gifted. How many of you have your right hand on top of your left arm? We'll be praying for you. See, the right way is to have your left hand on top of your right arm. That's the way I do it. <laughs> now I want you to put your hands out again in front of you. Now I want you to do the opposite of what you just did. I want you, if you had your left hand on top of your right, I want you to put your right on top of your left. You do it? Now I want you to do it real quick. Do it. It's hard to do, isn't it? In fact, I, I, have to, I have to consciously, consciously, and even forcibly do that. I tried this with my wife, and she just went, jink, jink, jink. I said, forget you. From the very beginning, we create habits, even of crossing our arms. Now, I don't want you to do this unless you have good health coverage. Men, sometimes I want you, in the morning when you're putting your pants on, I want you to put the opposite leg in first. Don't do that unless the bed is behind you. You will lose your balance. You could hurt yourself. There are so many things that we do by habit from the very early ages of our lives. I have four, we have four children. We did not consciously teach any of our four children the word mine. They never heard me come up to them and say, don't touch that, that's mine. They didn't hear their mother say, that's mine. I don't know where they learned that word, but they learned it. And they would use it with their brothers and their sister. Don't touch that. That's mine. I never taught one of my children to throw a temper tantrum. They did that by watching their mother. <laughs> That's not true. I have a feeling they did that because they were my children. Amen. <laughs> amen. That's from a brother and a mother could say an amen to that. We didn't teach them those things. It was part of that nature that is within them. And even though that sinful nature is a part of us, it has taken many of us years of sinning to develop our particular habits of sinning. It's, it's a habit to look after ourselves instead of to look after others. It's a habit that we have been born with, that when we're at Walmart, we want to rush to the shortest checkout line. Why? Because we want to get there first. We want to get out fastest. I have very seldom seen anyone in a Walmart checkout line that would say, no, no, please, you first. And she has two big buckets of barrels, what do you call those? Baskets full of food, no. It's something within our nature that we want to put ourselves first. It's part of our nature to retaliate when injured in some way. It's part of the sinful nature to indulge our habits of our bodies. It's part of our sinful nature to live for ourselves instead of living for God and for others. And you have, as I said to this young man, you have lived all of these years of your life living for yourself and putting yourself first and doing what pleases you first. And now you come to the place where you say, I want to die to Christ. I want to die to myself. It's going to take you to learn some new habits. 
to put the old habits away. Just because you surrender yourself to God doesn't mean all of those habits of 24, 25 years are going to instantly dissolve. That's what Paul was saying. Therefore, do not let sin, those sin habits, reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil's desires. But I said you must create some new habits in your life. You need to create some new habits of spending time in God's Word. Our people are starving to death. They're undernourished because they're not spending time in the Word of God. The bread of life. I said you, got, you have to spend time talking with God in prayer. Not as a duty, but as you begin to do it as a habit, it becomes a delightful time of your life of being in communion with God in prayer. I said, but you have to create the habit of spending time with Him and giving Him that time in prayer. I said, you need to find you a group that you can get in with, a Sunday school class, an accountability group, that they can hold you accountable and you can be honest to them and they will be honest to you back. I said, you must begin to create some new spiritual, what we call disciplines, I said to him, new spiritual habits of your life so that you can be do, become the person God wants you to be. But then I said, there's another thing that you need to do. And that is you need to come to the place even today where you are willing to say, Lord, I'm totally yours. I commit myself 100% to you. Nothing held back. Nothing in reserve. Not just giving you a closet in my home. Not just giving you one room. But Lord, I am giving you everything. We call that consecration where you are willing to say, Lord, I am willing to consecrate and commit myself totally to you. That's what Paul was talking about in verse 13. Look at verse 13. He said, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. I said all these years, you've been offering your body as an instrument of wickedness. But now I want you to do this. I want you to say, Lord, here am I. I'm willing to give everything to you. I am willing to give my heart to you to become an instrument in your hands, an instrument of righteousness. That's what Paul was talking about over in Romans chapter 12, wasn't it? You know the verses, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. I said to him, this is what you do as an act of worship. You offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Remember I said you're to be crucified with Christ. You're died to self. You lay down your life on an altar to him and say, Lord, I offer myself totally, unreservedly, unconditionally. I offer myself to you. But Paul doesn't stop there. Verse 2. And do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. I said, then you must come to the place where you are no longer conforming to the patterns of this world. Now, I want to tell you something. The world wants to squeeze you into its mold. Your old friends will want you to do the old things you used to do, go the old places you used to go, be the old person you used to be. That temptation will be there. Don't allow it to happen. Offer yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. And if you do that, the word of God tells us in verse 14 of Romans chapter 6, for sin shall not be your master. Because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Sin doesn't have to have control over you. 
Sin no longer will be controlling you and ruling you. You will be free to be the person that God wants you to be. Then he said, does that mean I'll never be tempted? No, you don't be tempted. Sometimes God used temptation to grow you and to mature you. Does it mean you'll never fail or never mess up again? No, it doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is Satan's no longer pulling your chain and controlling your life. But now it's God who's ruling and reigning your life. I thought I was getting through. And then he said this. He says, well, I guess what I'll have to do is just try harder. I said, well, that wouldn't hurt. That won't hurt. Because you, you, there's part of you yielding yourself to God. There's part of you that is not allowing sin to reign in you. There's part of you that you are laying down your life as a living sacrifice. There, there's part of your responsibility not to let the world conform you any longer. There's part of your responsibility to develop these spiritual disciplines. Yes, it would not hurt for you to try harder, but I want you to understand something. It's just not up to you. For God has given us a helper. And that helper is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said to his very disciples over in John's gospel, and he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor who will be with you forever. You see, Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. Understand this. It's now God's Holy Spirit who you have been crucified with Him, but He's resurrected you to new life, and this new life is the presence of His Holy Spirit living inside of you. And it's His Holy Spirit that's going to enable you. It's, Holy, it's His Holy Spirit that's going to empower you. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to change you. It's the Holy Spirit who will come and be with you 24 hours a day. Seven days a week, He will be your constant companion, your ever-present friend, your help in troubled times. His Holy Spirit will be with you. And not only will He be with you, but you know what? He's the one who's going to purify you. That's what David wrote over in Psalm 51, where he cried out, Oh, Lord, Created me a pure heart. Lord, you do it. I can't clean it out myself. I can't reform myself. I can't do it by just trying harder and, and working to be better. Lord, I need a pure heart, and only you can cleanse it. Created me a pure heart. Renewing me a steadfast spirit. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. See, the Holy Spirit wants to come in and not only be your friend, your bud, your pal, but he wants to come in and cleanse you and purify you and give you a willing heart and a willing spirit. He wants to give you uh, the power to sustain you. In fact, I've got good news for you. Not only did he come to purify you, but he comes to empower you. That's what he's talking about in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, isn't it? Where Jesus said to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You see, he gives us the power that we need to say no to sin, to Satan, to old habits of life. And he gives us a power to say yes to God. In righteousness, in holiness. It's Him, the Holy Spirit, Him living in us.
purifying, empowering. And then I read to him this passage in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. I said, now, Paul wrote, now to him who is able to do That wasn't good enough. Now to him who is able to do more. That's still not adequate. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more. That's still not good enough. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all I can even ask or imagine. Wow. That opens the whole thing to us, doesn't it? Now watch this. According to his power. His power that is at work within us. I said to my young friend, that which you can't do by yourself, (laughs) he is able to do. And not just do a little. He's able to do immeasurably more than you can even ask or imagine. And you know how it's going to be? It's going to be through the power of His Holy Spirit that's living in you, purifying you, empowering you, cleansing you, changing you, transforming you, sending you out into the world to live a victorious life that you really want to live. I looked at him, I said, what does that sound like to you? He said, that sounds pretty good. I said, you know what? God can begin that work right now in your heart. And there in my office on that day, I had the privilege of watching the transforming power of our message change a young man's life. God gave me a gift before I came here yesterday. That same young man came up to me after the service and gave me a big hug. And I said to him, How are you doing? He knew what I was talking about. He said, I am doing great. I said, you have the victory? He said, God's spirit has transformed my life. That's our message. That's our hope. That's his gift to us. What a great privilege to be back in campus. 1977, I was here. I couldn't speak a word of Spanish, English. <laughs> I lost my Spanish, actually. You know. But I was telling one of our field directors that I was here in 1977, 31 years ago, and he said, oh, I was three years old. <laughs> that's, that's a very humbling experience. Let's open our Bibles in the book of Ephesians, and we're going to read a prayer, a prayer of the Apostle Paul for the church, for the church at Ephesus. And I believe that that prayer is still resounding today for us for the church of the Nazarene and for the churches represented aquí, here. So we are going to read this prayer and let's hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened, with my through the, his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width 
and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or even think according to the power that work in us to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I was very impressed by those words, words to comprehend the, the width, the length, how, how big is the love of God. And what he's asking is that we have that in our hearts, that we have the whole fullness of his love. And this is a, it's a key prayer. Uh, I call this prayer like a, like a door. If you go through the whole book, this prayer is like a door. It closes from chapter 1 to chapter 3 and then opens another door for chapter 4 to chapter 6. He wants us to have the full measure of his love. He, he wants us to have himself. The fullness of himself. Let me, let me tell you a story. But promise me that you're not going to laugh. This happens in 19, happened in 1977. I came to Bible college from the seminary in Costa Rica. I was learning Spanish, English, and I had to buy a car. I didn't know how to drive, so I bought a car. And for me, it was a brand new car. I never had a car before. My dad never had a car. My granddad never had a car. I didn't know nothing about cars. So I got a little Austin American. I have a picture of that car parked in First Church. And for me, it was a brand new car. I was 20 years old. You know, I was married for a year and a half. I mean, I was having what any teenager desires. I was in a beautiful land. So we went everywhere in that car. I was learning the city, learning how to go to the mountains, and, you know, amazed of the creation of this beautiful land. And about three months later, my wife, that his dad, her dad, had a car, asked me, asked me a question. She said, when are we going to change the oil of the car? <laughs> and she said, no, this car is new. I said, it's, it's a great car. It has very little mileage, you know, had only 80,000 miles. <laughs> For me, it was little. It was a brand new car. And I said, well, we will do it later. You know, drips. Three weeks later, when are we going to change the oil of the car? And I said, later. You know, I'm learning English. I was in class with Dr. Spindle. And I couldn't understand anything. She went home and translated every word for me. And I really, we were going to bed about 3 o'clock in the morning. And we had to get up and clean campus and, you know, be a foreign student. Five months later, she said, when are we going to change the oil of the car? And I said, well, let me, you know, we don't have money. We were paying 150 an hour barely to make it. I said, what we need to do is we need to go to the mechanic shop and buy a book and buy the tools, buy the oil and the filter, and we will change the oil. You will help me. She was so happy. And I bought the book, and I put the book in the trunk of the car, and I put the oil in the trunk of the car, and I put the filter in the trunk of the car and, and the, I don't know how you call it, the, the deal to untie the filter. And, and it was there. And it was there for two more months. <laughs> and my wife said, when are we going to change the oil of the car? And he said, honey, we have the oil of the car. We even have directions how to do it. It is in the car. Well, another month went by, and 
in a red light <laughs> came on the dashboard. And it was flashing all the time. You, know, you couldn't avoid it. It was <laughs> telling you something. So my wife said, there is something wrong with the car. And I said, yeah, it must be the electrical system. <laughs> we didn't know nothing about cars. And, and I said, well, I, I went to my friend, uh, Tony Whittle. He was one of the students here. He was a mechanic. I don't know. I don't know what kind of mechanic he was, but said, I, I will fix it for you. Don't worry. He unplugged the red light. <laughs> well, a, a year went by. It was September of 1978. And, and we were going to Manitou Springs. And, and the car started shaking. And he was checking. And he was checking. And then we heard a horrible noise. And the motor exploded. I never checked the oil of the car. My prayer today is that God will come and put that sticking, that deep stick in our hearts. And we he will check where we are in our level of love for Christ. And as he speaks to us, probably we need to respond and say, Lord, fill me up again. Or I am dry. I'm shaking. I have seen all these red lights, but I haven't put attention to them. As, as I said, this, this prayer is, is like a door. And if you go from chapter 3 to chapter 4, immediately you see a whole bunch of commands. There is a whole bunch of orders. There is not, not too many orders from three back, but from uh, after four, there is a lot of commands. There is a lot of imperative verses. Listen, verse 4, 1, Therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. He's calling us to live worthy of the calling. He's saying to, to, to keep the unity later on. Uh, and he says, be, be in unity to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So everybody will be like Christ in the stature of Christ. And, and then he goes uh, in verse 25, therefore put, put away lying. It looks like there were some people with low oil and they were doing a lot of stuff. There in that church. And, and there's a lot of stuff here, but verse, chapter 5, verse 1 is very, very unique. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. Do you see it? This is an order, this is not a suggestion. He, he's not saying, you know, in, the, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, be like me as I am like Christ. But here, here he's saying directly to the church, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and giving himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet a smelling aroma. These are our orders. And, and if you go through the whole chapter, it says, keep being filled with the Holy Spirit, another order. It tells the, the husbands, it's an order, love your wives. This is very practical stuff. This is holiness in the real life. This is not theology. This is just real holiness. How, how to live your life where you are. It says, Ladies, obey your husbands. Husbands, take the example of Christ. Die for them. Honor them. Parents, treat your children decently. Children, submit to your parents. Bosses, directors, try 
picture people like Christ does are people that work for others. It's very, 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 a lot of practical stuff. And then he says, well, we don't have this war against principalities. We, we, have, we have that in the heavenly places. So he, he tells us to, to be dressed with the whole armor of God. I'm not going to go to that. But let me go back to the before chapter 3. I hope this joke is uh, culturally pleasing to you. Because I, I need to do this to, to illustrate what I'm going to say. There was a, a, a baby that was born without arms in Switzerland. And, and the doctor, the doctors there, Gustavo knows, he was telling last night, this morning, about how great are the German and Switzerland doctors. They put arms on him. His name is Feather, the number one tennis player in the world today. Another doctor, an American doctor, said, oh, that's nothing. Many, many years ago, you know, now you're advancing science, but many, many years ago, a baby called Baby Ruth was born without arms and became the, the best baseball player in history. You know, they were bragging among doctors. And another doctor said, I won't say from where is this doctor. He's from the southern hemisphere. I understand you're in the middle of elections, so. It's from the southern hemisphere. And this doctor said, you know, in my country, a baby was born without brains. We filled the head with garbage and became the president. <laughs> what I'm trying to point is that you cannot give an order. You cannot tell anybody to play tennis if you don't have arms or legs to run. You cannot tell somebody to direct the country or be whatever of an institution if he doesn't have a brain to do it. And that's what the apostle does from chapter 3 backwards. He tells us what we have to fulfill the orders that we are to fulfill from 4 to 6. Let, let's see, see what God has done for us. It's, it's an incredible. Starts in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. How many blessings he gave us? Every spiritual blessing. Where, where are those blessings? Those blessings are in the heavenly places. Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has Blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place. We have everything. We don't lack nothing. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The problem is to get to those heavenly places. If, if, I, if I knew where those heavenly places, I'll be there and enjoy every spiritual blessing. And, and it goes on and on. He adopted us, you know, in him we have redemption, in him we have forgiveness. He has even given, given us the mystery of his will. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit of the promise. And then in verse 15, having all that, he says, I'm going to pray for you. And there is a little thing lacking in the Ephesians. He is praying for them that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Verse 17. Verse 19 says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which worked in Christ when he was raised, him from the dead, and seated him in his right hand, in the heavenly places. Do you see it? They have every spiritual blessing. And now he's praying for them for wisdom and for power. And that wisdom and that power, guess where it, where it is? It's in the heavenly places. Resurrection power took Jesus to the heavenly places and sat him there. And he's there. 
And what does we have? We have every spiritual blessing. But it goes on. Look this. It's, it's incredible. We are, by grace, you have been saved. Verse 8. And that not of yourself. Look the verse before. Verse 6. And raise us together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where are you today? In the heavenly places. What do you have? Every spiritual blessing. You have everything that you need to live a powerful Christian life. In fact, the next place where he mentions the spiritual places is kind of scary. I'm scared even to read that. Chapter 3, verse 10. And he's speaking about the church, speaking about the body. And, and Paul, in chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 12, he's giving his personal testimony. He says, I am the, the least for the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Do you see that? What, what he wants to, the Ephesians church to become is a, a powerful church that will share Christ all over the place because that church has everything that it needs to share the gospel and the message of holiness. And then in verse 14, he kneels down. For this reason, I bow my knees. And he prays that we will have the fullness of the Spirit of God. And he prays that we will comprehend with all the saints, with the church, the size of the love of God. Remember, this is a, this is a great church. When the church started, there was a, an eloquent person in that church preaching. Remember? His name was Apollos. And, and two lay people can, kind of got him into the holiness message, you know. You are a Baptist, now you are going to become a Nazarene. Or, and they told him about the Holy Spirit. And, and Paul was there for about two years and a half. And they started that tremendous church. And he left Timothy there as a pastor. And actually, when, when John the Apostle uh, left Patmos, he was one of the last pastors that we know in that church. Great pastors. Great church. We were in Ephesus one, one day with Dr. Diel and with Dr. Basil and Dr. Smee and another four regional directors. And we were in Ephesus in front of the temple of Diana. And I remember there were, we had a, a lady that was a guide, a tourist guide, and she said, uh, I have a letter for you that I want to read to you. And she got her little New Testament out of the packet and read that letter that I'm going to read to you. He, he read that letter to six regional directors, a general superintendent, and the World Mission Division director. She was probably 24. And this is the letter in Revelation to the church in Ephesus. A great church. Great inheritance. Probably when, when John is copying this from the lips of Jesus Christ, I don't dare to say the church was 100 years old. Almost 100 years old. And this lady pulled the New Testament and said like this, the angel, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right. This thing says, he who holds the seven stars 
in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have not found them liars. And you have persevered, persevered and have patience and have labor for my name's sake and have not become weary. That sounds like our church, a great church. We haven't been weary. We are moving all over the place. We are very, we're against evil. Nevertheless, that's what I don't like. I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember my car? Remember the dipstick? I, I don't know about you, I know about me. I remember a few years ago I was preaching a, an evangelistic campaign coming from Rio Bamba to Quito, Ecuador, about three hours and a half, four hours. Late at night, probably about two, two o'clock, I had the altar full, but I sensed that I lost my first love. Uh, I have had only one girlfriend, Margit, my wife. We have been married for 32 years now. Actually, she shared with me the gospel. I don't know, I won't tell you where, but she shared with me the gospel. We're still married, three children, 129, 122, and 115. I remember when I was dating her, I didn't have a car. I was a university student. I didn't have any money. So I had to walk 50 blocks to see her. I wanted to take her to school. Guess what? I got up at 5 o'clock in the morning. And I walked 50 blocks to meet her and to take her to school. It took 20 minutes to take her to school, but it took an hour and a half to get where she was. And then I will walk back in the afternoon three times. You know, my, my pants were size 23. <laughs> I used to walk a lot. Now I'm 38, you know, I don't know what happened. I just had the, the, the retreat with the DSs in Colombia. I tell you, they have gone through a lot. But they get up at 4 o'clock every morning with their churches. They, they want to, to meet him. They haven't lost the first love. And I mean, these are not just older people. These are 12 years old, 14 years old. When you, when you come to that, they have one, one prayer service at 5 o'clock in the morning. Dr. Deal was with me there. And, and you come into that room and you see about 1,000 people just walking. It's too early in the morning, so they have to walk. It's not that they are doing a prayer walk. And, and when you come in, it's like when you come out of the air condition to the heat. And you face the heat. Hits you in the face. That's how you feel the presence of God when you come in. And, and you forget about, you know, my, my, my knee hurts or, you know, please help me with the board meeting next week. You come to praise God and to have fellowship with him. How deep is your love? 
Remember, maybe this week is the week of red lights that are going to us in the dashboard. Maybe we have the book, and maybe we have the oil, but it's not in the right place. With Dr. Basel, we were the first week of August in a pastor's retreat in Peru. We had an incredible time. There were 750 pastors and ministers and, and leaders. Incredible. All the generations represented. The, the Peruvian Nazarenes are incredible. They, they have the first love. Because whenever, when a lay Peruvian moves to another town, he doesn't go and find the Baptist church. In his house, he starts a Nazarene church. That's the first love, I guess. But uh, we went to, we, we went to a, you know, one of those touristic places where they sell all this kind of stuff. And, and we went to this old guy, about 82, Louis, 82 years of age. And he sells hats. And he said, oh, I, I, want, I want to give you one, and I want to give you another one. And, and, and the DS was with us, and he said, you know this guy? This guy's a lay person, and he's from my church, and, and he, he has planted many, many churches, many churches through the years, 82 years of age. So we start talking with him and, and, and Louis, and, and, and we ask him, how many churches have you planted? And he said, four. And I said, well, that's not that many. But what I didn't understand is what he was saying, that this month he was planting four new churches. And Louis asked him, or I don't know who asked him, he says, what, what is the key? What is the key? What is the key? And he said, well, I, I want to show you the key. And he raised up his pants and chose his knee. And he had a callous knee about this big. He says, I get up every morning about four o'clock in the morning. And I have a meeting with him. And I can't wait to open another place for people to come and meet him. The church in Ephesus had every spiritual blessing. It had the best leaders that the church has given us. Paul, Timothy, the Apostle John. But it's, you know, in 431, they decided about the deity of Christ, the council of Ephesus in that church. And then it became the church of Mother Mary. There became the church of Mother Mary. I asked Gustavo Crocker last night. He's the regional director for Eurasia. I said, do we have, is there any church in Ephesus? He says, maybe, maybe one. I said, maybe one from any denominations. There is no churches. No churches. No churches in Ephesus. They lost the first love. They lost the passion. By the way, I remember that little girl says, there is no church here in Ephesus, remember? And we were all crying, six regional directors, the general superintendent, and the world mission director. Why there is no church in Ephesus? They lost the first love. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I don't know even how to close this, but the, the Bible is so clear. We have the message not to enjoy. We have the message not just to say that we were sanctified, 
we have the message. Not to brag that we have the best doctrine. We have this wonderful, empowering message. So we can comprehend with all the saints, the height, the depth, the width of the love of Christ. Oh Lord, help us to Help us to see inside of us. Help us to measure our heart. Please, Holy Spirit, put this deep stick in my heart and, and let me know how I'm doing. I'm willing to get up in the morning and, and walk 50 blocks to see my beloved or to go to church. Help us, Lord. Give us with all the saints an awareness of your love so we can understand that everybody could be included. Help us to be missional. I, I, I want to be imitator of you. I, I want to walk in your love. Help me to do something. Help me to make a decision. It's a, it's a course that I, I love it. I don't know if Pan will help me. If you want to come, the altar is open.